It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with my partner in feminism, Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined by another member of our feminist cabal who has written a very important book um, that we've been we've been waiting for for a while without knowing that it was coming out or what it was called, but it's called Learning in Public Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. Courtney Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited to start my publication day with you too. Oh, I feel like this is such a honor. full circle moment because Courtney was the first editor I had at Feministing when I did my my first day. Oh, there's a cat. I Yay. thought I told you to come. He always comes to the Zoom. Perfect. Um, he likes to join. She, when she sees a cabal, a cabal of feminists, she's <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. these are my people. I got to get over Or anytime here. I'm sitting at the computer, he's like, I must see. But he only, he'll sit in the shot. He'll sit perfectly. That's, so he that's can where see we need you. him. I, I wish I didn't um, want to see. He wants to be seen. And yeah. I think oh. we need to respect that. I respect that. Like, he, he, he wants to be known. <laughs> he is. He's like famous now on YouTube. <laughs> um, but I feel like this is such a full circle moment. And it's, it's something that you've always done ever since I've met you is, is learn in public. And like, sometimes it's messy, right? Like so you mess up, especially in the feminist space. Yeah. Um, you can mess up and then everybody's like, you're a terrible person. And you're like, but I just messed up. I am really sorry. I'm going to do better. Um, how did, how did sort of the idea of really being honest about the conversations among white parents and the and the way white parents are complicit in, in maintaining this system because they don't want to do that. They don't want to do the, oh, I messed up in public. They don't want to be messy in public. Right. And so I think the learning in public idea um, is something that I've, I've always known you for, um, but I think it's so timely. So talk about why you wanted to be messy in public. Thank you, bud. Um, well, I certainly I do think of my muscles for being able to write this book as very much being born at feministing and born in those, you know, early aughts or whenever we were doing that and like really um, trying to to lean into a lot of intersectional feminist issues um, and then really process the feedback. And so even as someone in my like mid 20s, I was taking walks around the block and taking deep breaths and figuring out how to come back to the computer and be accountable. Um, so so it really did grow from that instinct, which has always served me ultimately, as you point out, it's messy and it's hard. You know, there are moments when it feels terrible, um, but I think it's it's really the only way to learn, right? That, that publicly and personally, I think, you know, you know, you can learn personally without being so public, but I'm really interested in um, using those muscles that I've learned in service of, of other people changing and growing as well. Um, this book in particular is born out of my um, own journey with my oldest daughter. I have two daughters, one seven and one turned five last week. Aww. And when my oldest daughter and I were, you know, taking our walks around the neighborhood, we live in a gentrifying neighborhood in, in Oakland. Um, you know, I had her strapped to the ergo and I was totally stressed out, like adjusting to motherhood and sort of like, what is what has happened to my life? Who am I? 
um, I kept walking by this beautiful school and hearing all these kids doing what kids do, screaming, laughing out at um, the playground. And I started to peer closer and I was like, there are like almost no white kids on this playground. And yet I know so many white families in this neighborhood, what gives? And so that was really, you know, the beginning of a journey of a thousand moral miles as I've um, written. And for me, um, the attempt to expose the reality of white parenting culture and especially white mothers, which is so important to me, um, felt necessary because I think on one hand, we want to decenter white people, but I think in order to do that, we have to see whiteness. Like we actually have to name the culture of whiteness, especially elite white culture, progressive mm -hmm. white culture, like all these things, it's just sort of like the water we swim in. So then we don't name it and we pretend we're not centering white people, but actually white culture is, is dominating all of these important policy decisions, all of these important sort of cultural assumptions we have about what's good and bad. So that's the weird paradox in this book is I'm trying to, to name whiteness and describe whiteness so that we can actually decenter white people, which is totally confusing. And it was a hard no, thing to do. And not. I don't know how much I succeeded, but that's what I was no, it, trying to it's do. It's not like, confusing. It's, it's, it's exactly so what we need to do. Yeah. To hear someone say that, like so very helpful. Like we see so many white progressives putting up Black Lives Matter signs in the window. What we do not see is white people talking shit about white people. I, I do a lot of that and it, 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 it's lost me some friends and it certainly isn't always comfortable, but as a white person talking about race, I feel like that's, that's my lane. Yeah. Like, is to point out where white people are falling down. And you do this in your book. Like we, we tend to, we tend to think of the cycle of progress and backlash as this like inevitable natural cycle that happens. And like, it's not, it's just white people. It's just white parents opposing school integrations at every turn in every decade, regardless of what the challenge presented for them is, they will oppose it. And if we, especially as, as white people, if we can't point that out, who the hell is supposed to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and also to your point about like, I, what I'm really trying to do in this book is not necessarily shit on white people, but I am trying to care less about hurting white people's yeah. feelings than I do about black and brown kids in this city. And, you know, as a stand in for the nation, getting what they deserve. And, you know, the book is dedicated to my child. I say like, she's already my best teacher and she deserves everything. And to every other kid who deserves just as much. And that's just like, I deeply believe that. So if it means I have to, you know, hurt some white people's feelings, look stupid in public in various ways because I'm on a learning curve. Like that's more important. The, the idea that, that we would, not that this book is going to do it. This book is like one tiny, tiny, tiny step in this huge, long history of people trying to say this and do this in various ways. But like if it could play any role in making sure that kids in my city and again, all over the country, but especially in my city of Oakland, get what they deserve, then fine. I'll hurt some white folks' feelings. Like we, we are so worried, especially white moms about hurting each other's feelings. And like, it, it's like so far less important um, than so many other things that we could be thinking about. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating is this idea that of, of white motherhood, um, because anything that white mothers do, you know, for the, for the best interests of their child, that, I mean, they can do anything. I mean, anything is fair game, you know, when you're talking about white motherhood. But when you're talking about black motherhood, I mean, it's so easy to see how that's just not the case. There's so many instances where 
you know, black mothers have been arrested or jailed for, for doing things to try to provide the best environment or schools for their, for their kids. And I think the question of like, where are all the white kids? I mean, people listening might not realize that they're, they live in the neighborhood, but their parents and their mothers were like, oh, I don't want to send my kid to that school because that's not the best school. So speak to that idea that you first referenced um, where, you know, what's seen as good or better is, is essentially, you know, it's steeped in anti-Black racism. Totally. Because like the more Black people there are, white parents see less quality. They just, they just do. Yeah, totally. Um, well, just to put it in perspective, Oakland is about 40% white. Um, you know, historically an incredible black city, home of the Black Panthers, you know, an incredible movement of Latinx folks throughout the last, you know, few decades, like a bunch of newcomers. It's really a home for a lot of new immigrants. So it's like this beautiful multiracial city, 40% white. The public school system, Oakland Unified, is 10% white. So already you have 30% of white people opting out of public school entirely. And then those 10% totally um, congregate in like, you know, three to four schools that have been deemed good enough for white kids in sort of like the white whisper network of parents. So, um, and good enough to your point means enough white people. There's a lot of research on this, that there's a bliss point um, at which white people are willing to look at a school with like a few black folks that makes them feel like there's this curated diversity. They love diversity. Here it is. Um, But not too many because then it becomes a quote unquote bad school. Um, and so Emerson, the school that my kid goes to, Title I school, 75% kids are on free and reduced lunch, meaning like their families earn very low annual incomes. Uh, lots of unhoused kids, majority black and brown, lots of newcomers, a quarter of the kids speak English as a second language, which is so cool. I have to say like such an enriching part of my kid's experience. Um, and so it wasn't on any of anybody's spreadsheet. Like all the parents who were like three or four years ahead of me sent me their spreadsheets. They're like, I'll save you the work. Here's the spreadsheet. These are the schools you got to get into. Here's when the tours are. And I was looking and I was like, but Emerson isn't even on this spreadsheet and it's three blocks from my house or, you know, one block from your house. Like, how could this be? Um, so it's, it's pretty profound, like actually invisible to white parents. And historically to Jess's point, um, this is what white mothers have done is passed around their whatever the old equivalent of the spreadsheet was mm-hmm. and, you know, far, far more blatantly racist and virulent conversations about like miscegenation and how we have to be scared of our white girls going to school with black boys and and all this kind of stuff. And it's what historian uh, Elizabeth McCray Gillespie calls the white women have been the constant gardeners of segregation throughout history. So then I, I got really interested in that. And I was like, okay, how do we reverse that? Like, how can I be, and how can I potentially, you know, recruit some other white moms to be constant gardeners of the opposite, to be the person on the playground who, when people say like, oh, well, you definitely shouldn't look at that school, but you should look at this school says, well, why definitely? Like, wh- where does that come from? Have you been to the school? Like, have you been a part of it? Um, and so how do we, on the playgrounds, at the birthday parties, like everywhere where white mothering culture accrues and, um, you know, mutates, because <laughs> it can be pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair word choice. Um, how do we interrupt it? And, and this also gets into the numbers, um, which is, you know, schools are rated based on test scores, standardized test scores. Um, my kid's school was when we chose it a one out of 10 on greatschools.org, which of course doesn't look good when you're trying to figure out uh, where to send your kid to school. And standardized tests in this country map directly onto socioeconomic background. 
Um, so could our school do better on test scores? Probably. Um, but the question of sort of how much do we value those test scores and we being all the parents, not just the white parents, but all the parents at the school, what do we all feel about whether we want to value test scores is a whole nother piece of the book that I tried to get into. I was a, a, a city public school kid um, also. I think uh, like your daughter is like, she's in for an education that she's not gonna get on the schools on the spreadsheet. Like, like the, the vast majority of my classmates were black and brown and they were treated so differently by the disciplinary institutions of our school. And we were so aware of it. Like if, if I were to get in trouble in high school with a group of my friends and I was the only white kid in trouble, we just sort of all, we, we just all knew that I would take the fall because nothing was really going to happen to me. We didn't wow. talk about it, but like that actually is critical race theory being taught in schools right there. It's not being taught by a teacher, but we are understanding how racism works within the disciplinary and law enforcement systems. Like that is actual critical yeah. race theory. It teaches you how to be a co-conspirator instead of an ally, which is like right. the whole thing at this point. So like, I can absolutely oh, Jess, see- I love this so much. Cause like, I, I feel like as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, this is what I want for my kid. Like yeah, saying yeah. what's best for my kid, you're best for my kid. Like if, <laughs> yeah. if someone with your skills and ways of seeing the world and ways of critiquing it is what my kid gets through this experience, like I'm so lucky. That is a hundred percent. That experience shaped the way that I view the world and like I wouldn't have traded that education for anything that had better AP level classes and like no I did not go to an Ivy League and no my grades were not wonderful in high school they were fantastic in college like it was you know it, it didn't make me less smart it made me smarter in other ways anyway this is a big old tangent but like thank you for no choosing it's, that it's really not a tangent because this is <laughs> so much of the, the I mean there's just straight up racism coursing through all of this but, but the other part of it is, is white culture and the way in which we continue to uphold like very narrow and I think like joyless ideas about what we want for our children. And I'm shocked once you kind of get out of the matrix and you see it, you're like, what? Like, do we, is yeah. that really all we <laughs> care about? Like, I am so weirded out by that now. Um, I feel very grateful to be looking in instead of being inside of the culture. And that's another thing I talk about is sort of schools school choice is not about a number. It's about you're joining a community of people. Both your yeah. kid is joining that community, but you as a parent are joining that community. And then there's an inertia to it. Once you've joined the community, that shapes your family's life. It shapes your values. It shapes the experiences you have, the joy you feel, like the goals you have for yourselves. And so I want to pick the inertia that is like the world that I actually want to live in, which is one where, as you point out, you get like really good social skills. You have super good critical thinking. Like you, you learn about a bunch of different cultures. You like have the capacity to be really flexible and thinking about what other people's values might be and, and struggle with them. I mean, that's been a big education for me is being in these multi-racial parent groups where we're trying to figure stuff out together. I mean, that's democracy. And like, yeah, that's I mean, what I want for my kid and myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about how in my life, my parents, they, they did the same thing, but as a black child, you know, they were like, we can't go to the public school. And we lived in New York city. So we went to the all white town. So my parents found the best school and it was an all white school. And then they put me in it. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And then I, you know, so, so I feel as I'm hearing. And what was that like for you, Zerlina? Like, as you hear us talking about it? Um, you know, therapy is very helpful in my, (laughs) my adult years. Um, I mean, I think that I learned one of the things I learned that I think is very important is I learned how to navigate white spaces. Yeah. I'm like fluent in, I mean, I know every Bon Jovi song. That's the joke. It's like, <laughs> I'm fluent. I'm fluent in, in whiteness, right? Like I know all of the things, right? Um, but I think that just helps me sort of move throughout the world and not necessarily feel so different when I'm in those spaces. Like I'm aware that I'm the only black person, but I don't, it doesn't make me feel like I'm in the movie Get Out because yeah, I've right. been in that situation so many times and I just like have to navigate it. And I also know how to sort of do certain things to, I don't know, come off better even in that environment because I know sort of some of the, the things that are applauded in white culture or, or sort of praised in white yeah. spaces and seen as like good. So then you sort of lean into that more. Um, and the other thing I, I, I keep thinking about is just like how, when you look at the statistics, we're basically as segregated as we were, we've always, we always were. And I think- In some cases worse. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, so the fact that you're highlighting that that's not like an accident. Yeah. There are spreadsheets that are facilitating that and sort of exposing that those conversations are taking place. I think that like, that's the radical piece. It's sort of like shining, putting the mirror in, into the faces of white, white folks here in America and saying, you're doing this. Like you, the reason why we still have these injustices, like don't be mad about racism if you're forwarding the spreadsheet, yeah. right? Well, and specifically progressive, like this is Oakland, like the yeah. most progressive <laughs> yeah. city in America would probably yeah. claim itself to be, I don't know. Um, and, and statistically like, you know, vast majority registered Democrats, et cetera. Um, yeah, that it's not just, and that's, I'm really trying to, there's like no sacred cows in this book. Like I'm, I'm, of course I, I'm like totally opposed to like Southern traditional racism or like, you know, various uh, kind of middle of the country version or versions of racism. But I'm, I'm really trying to talk about my own people, which is like progressive white people. And again, progressive white mothers, like that we have spent, especially this year, going to the protests, putting the signs in our, in our yards, posting the right stuff on social media, scrambling to figure out, okay, what's the next thing I'm supposed to say on social media? Okay, now we're all about abolition. So let me like say I'm about abolition and then I'll figure out what the hell that is, put it on social media. (laughs) So it's just like this constant scramble to project. And I don't think it's totally inauthentic. I think a lot of it is felt, but I think it's exhausting because it is pretty surface and that because there is this divide, whereas I feel exhausted like everybody else, but but it's an edifying exhaustion because it's like the exhaustion of actually trying to be in this community of actually trying to write stuff that scares me and get feedback on it of being in friendships across class and race lines and maybe screwing that up sometimes like um that is tiring just because it's like uncomfortable and and the same as you like navigating these spaces where you're like studying stuff and understanding the norms like it's tiring um, but it's edifying. It's like, at least I'm like trying something different. We can't like keep doing the same thing and expecting that somehow right. schools are going to integrate. Um, and the schools hit integration peak in 1988, which was like, you know, when the three of us were probably what in like elementary school or whatever, That's like, right. so 
and I think it's going to get even worse. That's like my prediction is that as kids go back to school this fall because of the, the private school, um, you know, uptick in private school because of COVID and a lot of black families are continuing to homeschool because that really worked for them. Um, I think we're going to have even more segregated schools this fall. So, so I want to I want to ask the the question that you probably get the most from from white mothers, just because I I want to hear and 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 broadcast your response. So the the defensive white frame on this is, I care about it, school integration. I care about being mm-hmm. anti racist, but I am advocating for the best possible thing for my kid. And that is all that matters to me. So the other, all other considerations have to be put aside because my child deserves the best shot in life. Do you feel that friction at all? Or do you feel like that's a false dichotomy that's being presented? Oh, I think it's complete bullshit, but I, I remember feeling it like, that's what I am trying to show the journey of, of my consciousness in the book. I mean, never as much as a lot of people would just because I'm built the way I am. And as Serlina pointed out, I've been like thinking about a lot of these issues since feministing and whatever, but I did have, before I made the decision, I was like, am I like screwing up my kid? Like, am I, and, and very importantly, is this some sort of like political statement? Is this the ultimate of virtue signaling to be like, I'm so anti-racist. I'm going to send my kid to this school and then write a freaking book about it. Right. Um, but as, as my friend, Andrew Morantz from New Yorker and I had this conversation, he's like, but where is virtue? If all it is, is virtue signaling. Like we still have to actually like try to be virtuous, moral humans who are continuing to learn, especially white people and like fight racism. So if we can't do that at all without it being performative, then we're screwed. Like we have to actually try to do it in our lives. So we had so, this conversation this morning. Right? Oh my God. We literally <laughs> had the same conversation. I was like, you know, I, I, cause I, I said like, I guess that's virtue signaling. And then I went on a rant about how I don't understand how virtue signaling became a bad thing. I'm like, isn't like trying to show people that you are kind and compassionate and you are considerate of their feelings and their experiences. Like, isn't that good? That's sort of the point of this. And I was like, like, but if you don't signal, people won't know. So yeah, I, don't I think understand. it's good when it's it's rooted in your real life. I think where it gets bad is if it's a surfacey thing that you check the box each day of like, I posted the thing that, you know, Simone Biles yeah. is the thing this week that I'm supposed to defend, yeah. even though I didn't think <laughs> critically about it or like, right. you know. So I think it's, it's, does the signaling actually represent stuff you're doing in your life? Like things you're actually working on in a day-to-day basis um, or living into or questions you're asking. Um, But to your point, Jess, I got a little distracted is that I think, um, I think about it in terms of short-term and long-term. What's best for my kids short-term? First of all, I, I'm so tired of that being like the, you know, little wormhole that every white parent slides Mm -hmm. down. I don't, I don't understand. There's more kids than yours. Sorry. It's so crazy, but short-term what's best for my kid is this environment, this incredible school that we happen to be a part of. Like she loves it. She's super happy. She's all these cool friends. She can like read, maybe not like the best of every, you know, coming second grader in the world, but like, she's figuring it out. Like she's doing all the things you're supposed to do in school. Right. Um, and she's just like happy and joyful. And she, she, her, the, her way of seeing the world is formed, which I try to also talk about in the book in, in small ways. Like I just watch it in her. Like the other day we were watching a basketball game and her, one of her grandparents was like, we saw someone with like a, a foreign name. And one of her grandparents was like, do kids at your school have 
um, different sounding names. And she was like, no. <laughs> she, she's like, I mean, yeah, like a kid, like, you know, there's kids from Yemen and wherever, like, she's just used to names of all kinds. So they don't sound, she didn't even understand how to interact with that question. <laughs> and to me, that's like the paradigm shift is like, win. it's just a totally different, that's best for her that she doesn't even understand what her grandparent is saying to her. And then what's best long-term is like a democracy that actually functions. And that's about much more than integration, but it's like, I deeply believe that public schools are the best chance we have at in a very long-term way, obviously there's tons of short-term things we need to do to like shore up democracy, but in a long-term way, if we actually had a functioning public education system that taught people to be critical thinkers and like befriend and collaborate, done. Like everything would be so much healthier in this like country. And so for me, I want my daughters when I'm dead and gone, like to live in a democratic America. So for me, that's like long-term what's best for my kid is that she go to this public school that I hope represents what the future of America is. Do you feel like you have a responsibility to the black kids at your daughter's school? Do you feel like you have a role there at all? Or is it, because I feel like I would go in and be like, I want to use my whiteness for good. And then I should probably just shut the hell up and listen to what yeah. everybody else is already doing. Like, how, how do you navigate that? That's a, that's a really big tension. I mean, I've learned a lot from this national movement called the Integrated Schools Movement, which has like a website and a podcast. And it's like white and or privileged folks, a lot of Asian American families um, trying to talk together about how to show up in this way. Cause it's not just about making the choice Then it's about like show up and, and try not to be an asshole. Cause you've been like trained to be an asshole your whole life. <laughs> um, and so I, I really took a kind of show up and shut up their, their adage is show up, shut up and stay put. Cause a lot of white families also, yeah. you know, try this. And then when things don't go their way, they like, you know, flee. And then these schools are left with, you know, low enrollment and not enough money because that white family gave a lot the year before and now they're pissed off. So they're not going to give any more money and all these things happen. So um, show up, shut up and stay put, which is mostly still my, my vibe. Although what I found in my school is that um, the other tension is I am there for all kids. And if all kids aren't getting what they need to thrive, then that's on my watch. Like, that's the point is that we are a community. So it's like the educators, the parents, all of us together saying, are all the kids getting what they need? And if they aren't, we get, we got to say it out loud and figure it out. And so um, at my school, and this is in the book, there's a particularly like dramatic character named Blair who like busts in white lady um, and is like, this school is so wrong and has all of these critiques and is, is, does it in this like pitying racist patronizing way. But what I did is I really wrestled with what she was pushing forward for me, which was like, am I speaking up enough? Like, am I clear enough about what we care about in this school? And am I clear enough about whether the kids from low-income backgrounds, the black and brown kids, the newcomers are getting what they need? And so that became a dialogue throughout the book. Um, and then the other thing is there's this really central relationship I have with my kid's first teacher, who's a black woman um, named Mrs. Minor. And she also has really pushed me on authenticity. Like, don't show up and be like, my kid's going to be fine. Don't even look at my kid in the classroom. Like pretend my kid's not there. Just focus on the black and brown kids, you know, which is sort of how like white progressives can sometimes be. And me too. And um, she's like, don't do that. Like we, like, we don't want you to take over the classroom, but we don't want you to like act like this wilting flower that like doesn't care about your kid. You care about your kid. All of us do. That's our common language. Right. That's our shared value. So like, just say you care about your kid but also care about the other kids and recognize like 
where your kid is okay and you don't need to like bust in constantly and ask for a bunch of time from the teacher. But if you have a question, like ask it. So that's, I think that's something that also a lot of white progressives fall into is shutting up so hard that they become inauthentic in these multiracial spaces. I don't know, Zerlina, if, if you've felt that or if that, if that feels, if that bugs you, but. Well, no, I mean, I think there's a couple of different things that white progressives do. Stop eating the cat food. Sorry. <laughs> white progressives do not eat cat foods. Or multiple the- animals in cool. here and they're always doing something. Um, but, um, but I think that whenever you can be aware, like whenever you're not like patronizing or sort of like talking down to, or like talking about an experience and assuming that black people don't have the same experience or aren't aware of the same thing. It's like, whenever you're falling into that, um, and I see that pop up a lot with white progressives and I'm always like, like on the campaign, that was Yeah. But but you know what? Those people are, I love them dearly and they're my friends for life, you know, because you have those harder conversations. So I believe in having the conversations like you do, Courtney. Like I think that the resistance in having the conversation is why these problems persist because we're scared. We're scared of saying the wrong thing. Um, and if you have a radio show every day at 7 a.m., you know, I'm over the fear of saying the wrong thing, clearly. Yeah, you got, <laughs> so you got I think more people, serious more muscles for learning authentic. in public. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. say the thing and it could be wrong. And then tomorrow you're like, you know, I thought more about it and I changed my mind. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah, I think. Well, and I, I think yeah. especially for white people, um, the sort of attachment to to being um, this sort of like, uh, you know, perfect, perfect, like, avatar of anti-racism if if you're progressive this is still with progressives like that is just so damaging because it like misses the whole point which is that like this is this is like deep generational work and that there's nothing like there's no no perfect thing to say this is not about like some perfect expression of anti-racism this is like we are find ourselves in the middle of this story this american story in the middle of these systems and what are we going to do about it? And it, unless we like grapple out loud with the choices we're making, the actions we're taking, then we're not going to learn from one another. So that's like another hard thing about this book is I'm trying to both provide what you know I think of as like social proof to white and our privileged parents. Like you could make this choice and have an experience something like mine. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be very different, but um, and your kid's going to be okay. And like all these trumped up fears that you have, these outsized notions of risk are going to prove totally false. Um, and I'm not saving anyone. Like, this is not fixing the system. This is not like, I'm nobody's savior. I'm not like, I don't deserve a cookie. This is not brave. This is just like, I did something my friends didn't do. Uh, most of my friends didn't do because I thought a lot about it and decided to do something different. And so I'm trying to provide social proof in the same way, like my friend, Courtney McKitten, who died in the course of writing the book. And she's a character in it. She provided it for me. It was really helpful to just have someone that kind of we shared a similar sense of humor. We came from a similar background. Be like, yeah, this is okay. Like, I know people are acting like you're doing something really weird, but it's fine. And I was like, okay, it's fine. Courtney said so, you know? <laughs> Courtney Martin, I want to thank you so much for writing this and hanging out with us today. The book is Learning in Public. Um, we could not recommend it more. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 